Why do the good guys win in the end in the stories that please us? From fairy tales like Cinderella to movies like The Lord of the Rings, we cheer for the good side and boo the bad. Intellectual elites argue that there is no such thing as good and evil, that it's only a matter of opinion, but the reality of history and the reality that exists inside our own hearts knows that this is a lie. There is a yearning in our hearts for the resolution of the ultimate conflict between good and evil, and the book of Revelation reveals who will be victorious in this battle. Our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, takes us to Revelation 19 and the revelation of the white horseman who beats the bad guys in the final showdown. Let's join Dave. I want you to imagine that a story like Peter Pan turned out that Captain Hook won in the end. Instead of Peter Pan winning after all that conflict, let's suppose that Captain Hook won. So if you've ever asked yourself the question, why is it that in the end the good guys win and why is it inside of me that there's such an incredible passion for the good guys to win? You know why? Because this book teaches us, unlike a lot of information you're going to hear, this book teaches us that there is an ultimate good king. There is an ultimate good God. There is an ultimate good savior. And this world is under rebellion and really bad things. Death and blasphemy against the king of kings and murderous violence and lying and cheating and stealing and immorality and unfaithfulness. And all this stuff permeates our world. But the worst one of you, the the teenager that's sitting here saying, I'm not into this Jesus thing and I can't stand Jesus anymore. I'm just here because of my parents. Or maybe, you know, a young adult that kind of wandered way away from the Lord and during university days and they forgot all about this stuff. But now they're back because they're beginning to think, well, maybe there, i got to think through some of this stuff. No matter where you are in your life, deep in your soul, every one of you have a yearning for the good guys to win. Even when I talk to really rebellious kids, when I get them away from their gang and we're just sitting in the office, you know what almost every one of the so-called bad kids tell me? They say, Dave, I don't really want to be bad. I don't really want to lie. I don't really want to, you know, get plastered and drunk. And I don't really want to be immoral. I don't really want to do bad things. Deep in their soul, they're yearning and they're telling me, I know that there's good. I just have a terrible time doing the good. I have a terrible time getting it out and and being able to experience that power. And so even the rebellious person is really saying deep in their soul, we know that the good should win. And I want you to think about, why is that so? Because you could have lived in a world, you could have lived in a world where evil was the ultimate thing. Where cruelty and lying and stealing and being unfaithful and all of those things, that was reality. That's the way the ultimate being in the universe was. And everything could have been reversed, but it isn't. From the beginning of time, though there's a tremendous conflict between good and evil, deep in our souls, every one of us want the good to win. You know why? Because you're yearning for the white horseman. You're yearning every story you see, every novel you read, every time you read a history book, you're, you're yearning for a great deliverer, a great white horseman to come to set things right. 
Someone that will have the power, someone that will have the justice, someone that will have the truth in order to make things right. In the book of Revelation, turn to Revelation chapter 19, because the book of Revelation climaxes today and tells us about the yearning of our soul. It tells us that ultimately, in the end, there is a great white horseman. There's a great deliverer that rides forth. And all the stuff that we've been looking at, we've been studying the book of Revelation, the Antichrist, the ultimate Hitler of history, this ultimate totalitarian, this man that's been butchering the followers of Jesus, this man that's been invading Jerusalem, the false prophet that's by his side, that's been doing these false miracles. This Antichrist has been beheading Christians. I mean, it is worse than the worst horror flick that you've ever seen. This Antichrist is just taking the heads off one believer after another. And it looks like God is not doing anything. Sometimes in your life it's going to look like God's not doing anything. It looks like wickedness is winning. It looks like the evil forces are going to overcome. That's why the book of Revelation was written. John the Apostle wrote this book to a group of people living in the not yet. Domitian was ruling when John wrote this book. Domitian was beginning to persecute Christians. Nero, in years past, in in the 60s, had hung Christians on crosses by the hundreds and then by the thousands. And the years were going to come to the church when believers would would be thrown to the lions. Just like in Gladiator, Christians would face the lions, only they wouldn't be given swords. They wouldn't be like the gladiators that could fight off the lions that were put upon them. Christians in the Colosseum would be covered with oil and then set on fire. This is the kind of thing that the church was going to face. How can you give people hope that when they're going to face that kind of disaster? The book of Revelation was written to a people just like that. They were written to people that had found Jesus to be the ultimate reality of their soul. And Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, gives them the ultimate hope. Look what it says. It says, And I saw heaven standing open. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, we had heaven opened up for us to see. And John the Apostle was caught up. And we saw the worship of the heavenly court, the 24 elders, the four living creatures. We saw heaven open and we began to look at things from a heavenly perspective. Now as we begin to move towards the climax of the book, the close of the book, once again, heaven is standing open. And as we look up into the open heaven, we begin to see that now we're going to have the interface between the spiritual world and the physical world is now going to be peeled back and we're going to be able to look into ultimate reality. We see that standing at the threshold of heaven, there was someone on a white horse. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he he is dressed in the robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. This is the ultimate white horse. And remember I've told you that throughout the book we have holy, sacred, political cartoons. And theological cartoons. Remember we had the dragon the red fire-breathing dragon in Revelation chapter 12. We had the wondrous woman, the queen, who was going to give birth to the Messiah in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 13, we had this horrible beast that comes up out of the sea. And he's this seven-headed monster, and he has these crowns on one of his heads, and we have all this incredible imagery. Well, now we have the ultimate picture that John wants you to see in the book. And I want you to think about, just kind of paint a picture in your mind. 
What does a white horseman represent for the followers that, that were reading this book, for the followers of Christ in the first century? Well, they knew of the great victories, for example, of a Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar conquered up in Gaul and he conquered Germania and he came down into Italy and set up the, the beginning of the, of the monarchy of, of the Roman Caesars. As Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and marched into Rome, he rides on a white steed. He rides into Rome on a white steed and the horse is prancing and he, and he has his legions marching behind him. He has the enemies, the slaves that were taken captive in Germania and they're put in the prison and Julius Caesar is hailed by the Senate as the king of kings. All the great conquering generals down through history ride this tremendous white horse. Napoleon, you can even see Napoleon's uh, stuffed horse that he rode into battle and he would ride this gigantic steed and though he was small in stature himself, boy, when he rode among his troops, he would, he would give them victory just by the power of the boldness of his imagery as he rode this gigantic light-colored steed. That's the picture that's here. That's a great general. And I want you to understand something about Jesus that we're worshiping today. At Christmas time, we worship Jesus, a little baby, in a manger. And he's gentle, and he's soft, and he's compassionate. And Jesus came the first time because he wanted to be able to enter into our hearts. And we're now living in the light of the first coming of Jesus. Every one of you in this auditorium, myself included, we can live our life as if Jesus didn't even exist. We can ignore him. He comes to us deep in our soul and he talks to us in a quiet voice and he tries to reach out to us. But if you don't want to listen, you don't have to. You can just forget all about it. You don't have to listen to his voice. You can, you can be immune to it. You can ignore it. But I want you to understand something that ultimately in the pages of your life and the pages of history, no one's going to be able to ignore the baby that was born in Bethlehem. That's what this text is about. See, Revelation pictures another gives us another image, not of a baby born in a manger, but of a great conquering general that comes forth and is, he's riding a white steed, which is the symbol of salvation, it's the symbol of purity, it's the symbol of this is the one that's going to really set things up on planet Earth the way that it ought to be set up. It says that he rides this white horse. What's his name? It says his rider is called Faithful and True. What's the name of Jesus? What is the name of Jesus? You know, every one of you are looking for someone that's faithful and that's true. The idea of his name being, what the idea of a name in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the scripture is that a name stands for what we are in our character. We've often taught you this. In American culture, we use names because we like the sound. But in the biblical culture, they give names because it designates the very heart of the individual, the character of the individual. And this ultimate white horseman that's riding forth, that's coming down to conquer, he is called faithful and true. You know, every one of you needs someone who's going to be dependable, who you're going to be able to count on. This word faithful means that this individual makes a covenant with you. He makes a vow with you. And stemming from that new relationship that comes from the holy vow that he makes to you, there are a whole lot of obligations, changes in relationship, and, and, and faithful means that he will keep every one of those obligations. But amazingly, this word faithful in the Bible goes on and says this, even when we don't keep our side of the relationship, the word faithful means that this rider on the white horse will keep his agreement with us. 
In other words, every single one of you, when you got married, like one of, the, one of the ways we understand this, when we get married, we enter into a holy vow. We make a sacred vow. We make a sacred promise. And we say for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And we all, you know, we all clap and we all applaud. We all think that's an incredible thing. You know, there's a new relationship. There are obligations, you know, purity and devotion to that person. And what this word promises us is that even if we break that relationship, Jesus, the rider on the white horse, promises he's not going to break the relationship. That's the kind of faithfulness that Jesus has towards you. He promises you under the new covenant that he's going to keep you his child and he's going to work you through your, your unfaithfulness, through your failure, through your sin. And he promises that even when you break your side of the relationship, that he'll keep on coming. And by the way, if you want your marriages to last, you need that kind of Jesus breathing through you so that you'll be able to give that same kind of grace to your partner. What's destroying our relationships is that there's no faithfulness anymore. None of us believe in faithfulness. Very few people in our culture believe in faithfulness. We believe in what meets my needs. We believe in what gives me a fulfilling life. We believe in what's going to bring a relationship of warmth and security and provision for me. And as we grow older in our life, we reach points where we feel that, man, this isn't working out very well. There really isn't the kind of relationship I want. And so we jettison faithfulness. We say it's not important anymore. I don't have to be faithful. I don't have to keep my relationship graciously. And that's going to kill you. Why is that going to kill you? Because that's the opposite of the character of Jesus. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the one. Aren't you glad that when you fail, when you sin, when you blow it, aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers and move into another relationship with someone else? How many of you are glad for that? That's what this word means. The ultimate rider in the white horseman. You don't have to listen. I want to share something with you. Don't listen to what I believe. But I want to challenge you. You're going to decide whether you're going to believe in faithfulness, the white horseman, and whether you're going to let this white horseman ride into your life. You, some of you ladies, you're looking for a great hero. Some of you precious, my precious sisters in Christ, you're looking for a great man, an ultimate man. You're looking for a man who will give you love, will give you happiness, will give you faithfulness, will give you endurance, will give you all those things. And some of you feel like, man, I, I'm not sure I really found it in my husband. And boy, I, I can feel the years passing by, and I'm not sure I really found it with him, and so I think I need, to, I need to try something else. And your husband maybe have really let you down, or vice versa. Some of you wives have really let your husbands down, and they're saying exactly the same thing. They're saying, I'm not sure this woman can do it for me. You know what all of us need to ask? Am I allowing Jesus to do it for me? And I'm very serious about that. Jesus is the only white horseman who can ride into your life and be faithful. Jesus is the only white horseman that can ride in your life and sweep you away. And you'll find the one who will always keep his promise to you, always be there for you. And until you allow Jesus to do that, you're an idolater. And I'm an idolater. 
And Jesus is going to keep tugging at our soul. He's going to keep coming. He's going to keep, keep allowing our life to have all kinds of, of controversy in it and trouble in it. He'll do everything he can because he is the ultimate faithful one. He is the rider on the white horse. He's the only one that can hold history together, that can hold your life together. It's serious business whether or not I've responded to this faithful rider on a white horse. Second of all, he's true. What does that mean he's true? You see, you can believe, you know, what Tom Cruise believes. You can believe in Scientology. And you can have all the beautiful people that believe in Scientology. And you can believe about the ultimate forces that are out there. And you can think about the force that's within you. You can think about the tremendous godlike principles that are inside of you. And you might live your whole life following Scientology. You can go ahead and do that. But you know what the word true means? It means that one day... When you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and when you say, would you please hold out your hand, you won't be able to do that. You'll be so bowled over by his majesty and might. But let's say you could. You look at the ultimate king in the universe, the ultimate Lord of Lords. You say, could I please see your hand for a minute? I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, one day the great King of Kings will put out his hands, and there will be nail prints in those hands. You'll know that he's Jesus. A Jewish rabbi was sharing, you know, about struggling with believing in Jesus. And he said, that's no big deal. He said, man, when he comes a second time and he cleans away the golden gate and I'm able, and he walks right through the golden gate, I'm just going to ask him one question. Have you been here before? If he says yes, then I'll get down on my knees before him and I'll believe in him. And I trust that he will. But I'm afraid that by this time it'll be too late. Because now is the time. Now is the time where God's given us all the Old Testament scriptures that predict him. Now is the time when God's given us his precious word. Now is the time when God's given birth to the church. And now is the time where the precious Holy Spirit's moving among us to move us to believe the truth. Our culture doesn't believe in truth. Our culture believes that you create truth yourself. Our culture holds that every single one of you can just decide what's going to be truth for you. What's going to be your own reality? In fact, that's what virtual reality and all that stuff is moving us toward. It's very much the idea that you can live in your own world. You can live in your own existence. You can just make up your own way of living. You can even live in a virtual reality world where you can actually become your own creator. What I really want you to understand, what this word true means, is that you might do all those things, but one day you're going to find out that it wasn't true. It wasn't real. It wasn't what was true existence. You didn't give birth to yourself by your own creativity. And you're not going to die when you choose to die. And you're not going to go where you want to go. You're not going to make up your own reality. That's what this rider on the white horse is about. He's riding forth at the ultimate time of history, right at the climax of the seven years of tribulation, when Antichrist has lied for the last time. And Antichrist has told the world that you can create your own reality and you can just live your life in the goods you can buy and you can get all the stuff and this rider on the white horse rides forth. And he says, I'm the one that's true. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know something from the depths of my heart. I'm not the one that can tell you the truth. But this book can tell you the truth. And every one of you can escape the question of truth. Every one of you will decide what you believe is real What you believe conforms to reality. What you believe is ultimately going to be there. Some of you are going to meet scientists. Like as our seniors go away to college, you're going to meet a scientist and he'll be a brilliant person or she might be a brilliant PhD in in biophysics or some exotic field. And they might hold that there isn't any Jesus and there's no God and this book is a bunch of baloney. And they can be so attractive and so powerful and you can think, oh man, I need to follow the new way. I want you to understand something about that scientist. 
they're faced with the same ultimate decisions you are. And their belief that this material world and the forces that they're examining is all there is, that's a belief system. That's a philosophy. And you can decide whether you believe it's true or not. But you're going to have to put up with the consequence at the end of the time. I follow a savior who created all the stuff that the scientists study. I follow a savior who just spoke into being the whole universe as we know it today. He understands all of physics, understands all of chemistry, understands all of biochemistry, understands everything there's to know about mathematics. I follow a savior who's been into the ultimate place in heaven, been to the ultimate place in the supernatural world. He'd been to the deepest parts of hell. He'd been to the deepest sea and the, and the farthest you can go in the universe. My savior says I've been everywhere. In fact, I'm omnipresent. I know everything there's to know. And he tells me as the great white horse, and he says, Dave, you need to accept me as your Savior and Lord. You need to be like a little child before me. And that's the man. That's why Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you might spend your whole life strutting yourself, thinking you know what reality is, and you know better how to live. But one day you're going to find out that everything that was recorded in this book was true. It was faithful. It was reliable because that's the very name. It's the very character of this great white horseman that comes on a white horse. It says that he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. How many of you are involved in a court case where you wish you knew the truth? To be honest with you, throughout my life, you know, in marriage situations and in criminal situations, as I look back over some of the the judicial cases that I've, that I've been involved in, one of the deepest yearnings in my heart is I wish I knew the truth. I wish I knew what was really just. In fact, Mary and I have had conversations this week where we've just, you know, Mary said to me, boy, you know, honey, I just, I just wish I knew what was right. How do you ever judge? How do you ever know? And then some of you are cynical. Some of you this week have said, man, there isn't any right and and the courts never make the right decision. We live in such a terrible world, and the right never prevailed. It's always just, you know, kind of in between. And, and we can kind of throw up our hands and become very cynical. The book of Revelation comes to you today and says there's ultimately going to come a one that's going to judge everything right. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has eyes that are penetrating like fire. And there was a Jesus looks at my soul today. There's no con. There's no deception. There's no smooth words. How many of you have ever met someone that can talk their way out of anything? I mean, they've just got a silver tongue and they get away with murder. Anybody know someone like that? Before Jesus, the tongue melts. The eyes penetrate right to the soul. Jesus knows exactly every single detail. In the courtroom of heaven, Jesus, with his penetrating eyes, sees the whole thing. Knows everything. Nobody gets away with anything. That's what these penetrating judicial eyes, he does what is right. That's the incredible thing here. He judges with justice, he judges. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head, on his head are many crowns. What does that mean? Well, Antichrist had been wearing these diadems. In the ancient world, they would wear these bands, like a king like Darius that was the king when the Persians took over under Daniel. Uh, when Daniel was living in Babylon, they would wear like a band, kind of like a Nike sweatband. 
But on that band, they would put the diadem. They would put all of these names now, of all their titles. And if they were a really high exalted figure, on their crown would be all of these diadems that would be telling to the world how great they were and how mighty they were. Jesus is the one that wears the ultimate diadems. He wears the ultimate symbols of his reign. And one of the things about him that you'll never totally understand him is that no one knows but he himself. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. We've learned that his name is faithful. We've learned that his name is true. The idea that diadems means that he has the right to rule. The high priest in the Old Testament would have a diadem on his head. And then he would have the name, the holy name for Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the ultimate name for God in the Old Testament. Yahweh would be on the diadem on the high priest's head. Maybe that's the name that Jesus has engraved on his diadem. I think that probably, though, there's the idea that there's a name of Jesus that only he knows. And when we talk about the name being the character, it means that no matter how close we get to Jesus, no matter how much we might enter into knowing him, we can never know him completely because he's God. That's what it means for Jesus to be God. You see, what God is, is ultimately you can know what God reveals about himself to you, but there's, an, there's a sense in which none of us can totally understand and comprehend God. God is incomprehensible because he's totally transcendent. And what Revelation is claiming about this man that was born in Bethlehem, the man that died on the cross, the man that rose again, it's saying that one day he's going to ride forth on the page of the history at the end of the tribulation period, and he's going to arrive and he's going to be the faithful, true judge of all the earth, penetrating with his eyes. But no one will be able to completely understand the depths of his character because he's one with his father. And I pray that you have fallen in love with this Son of God, who John predicts will rule in righteousness and justice in the end. Today he offers the justice of his cross, where he fully paid the penalty for your sin. Today he comes to your heart quietly, asking to come into your life. Why don't you open the door of your life to Jesus today? Dave and I have made this decision to trust in Jesus, and it's the best decision that we ever made. As we close this study on the White Horseman, why don't you open your life to his gift of forgiveness in life? 